America in a world that works for all of us, for all of us, that puts people, planet, and peace, and peace over profits. The power to create that world is not just in our hopes, it's not just in our dreams, right here and now, it's in our hands, in our hands, in our hands, in our hands. When you've got so many voices, but only two choices is tragic. It's the intersection where deception is apparent. What's a generation facing global havoc when the catastrophe faced was caused by their parents? You're irresponsible. I gotta confess, I'm jealous. They got the party while we clean up the mess. I'm stressed, and yes, this is thinking selfishly. But what about me? I want a family, kids, that dog, and take offense. I want paid vacation, a commute that makes sense. I want a raise that regular increments. I might want it, but we don't need none of that. We need clean water, clean air, and health care. We need a legal system where justice is fair. We need a government that cares for its people. We need a country where all men are treated equal. We need integrity in public service and compassion in all who give service. We need a leader who works hard every day to make all of us a better tomorrow today. It's time to stand up. We are the ones we've been waiting for. It's time to forget the lesser evil and fight for the greater good. Like our lives, like our lives, like our lives, like our lives, because they do. Right here and now, in our hands, in our hands, in our hands, in our hands. is good for the ganda, but with only two choices, don't believe the propaganda. Question the ESP in that whole extravaganza, knowing that trickery had to have been the answer. is bringing democracy, flying Ghana, spreading capitalism, like Kansa. The climate's a change, and they say all is fine. They blow up women and children like it's not a war for us to shift our paradigm where we design our own storyline. Open up your heart and let your love shine so we can see peace in our lifetime. If we consolidate and combine, we gonna be the strongest possible witness by mankind. And womankind is a sign free of mind. Yes, we want a woman, that woman is Jill Stein. that is green new world by boom shaka which you can find on youtube by searching for boom shaka greetings and welcome back to bernie 2016 this is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on bernie sanders candidacy and our revolution the movement he helped inspire this podcast is completely independent of any candidate party pack or political organization if you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or follow on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can find out more about Bernie2016 at Bernie-2016.com. 
First up is from the Chicago Tribune.com. And this piece is by Jill Stein. A voter revolt is brewing in America. People are fed up, and they should be. The super-rich are destroying our economy, sending our jobs overseas, and making our planet uninhabitable. But instead of offering real solutions, the two-party system has produced the two most disliked and distrusted candidates in history. In a Fox News poll from September 30, 57% of voters said their choice in the presidential election is motivated primarily not by enthusiasm, but by fear of the other candidate. Democrats and Republicans have lost ground to independents, now the largest voting bloc. Meanwhile, an incredible 57% of Americans polled recently by Gallup say the Democratic and Republican parties have failed and we need a new major party. In short, the American people are ready for real competition to the two-party system. As I travel the country, I hear disgust with both parties, especially among young people. They see a political establishment that is unwilling or unable to tackle the dead-end economy, crushing student debt, endless expanding wars, growing climate crisis, and injustice in our legal and immigration systems. They see Donald Trump as an ignorant, bigoted predator and Hillary Clinton as an untrustworthy insider with a troubling record. The Green Party's message makes sense to many because Greens have the freedom, as the only national party that doesn't take corporate money, to speak out for fair, common-sense solutions that establishment politicians won't touch. But while the two-party system may be deeply unpopular, It's also deeply entrenched. Greens and Libertarians have both spent tremendous resources to overcome laws designed by Democrats and Republicans to keep competition off the ballot. Yet despite this milestone, the mainstream media have given us less than 1% of the coverage they've given Trump and Clinton. Of the relatively tiny amount of coverage we get, most is either openly hostile or subtly negative, constantly reinforcing the idea that Americans can never hope for a better choice than the lesser of two evils. The establishment's strongest line of defense is the presidential debates controlled by a private corporation run by Democratic and Republican Party elites. A landslide 76% of Americans wanted a four-party debate, according to a September USA Today poll. Yet the Commission on Presidential Debates insists that candidates can only participate if they're polling 15% nationally, a near-impossible task when your media coverage is 1% of that of the establishment parties. Supposedly, this is to keep out, quote, non-viable candidates. It certainly does help prevent other parties from becoming viable in the eyes of the public. What would our history look like if another challenger to the two-party system, Abraham Lincoln, had been locked out of debates by the dominant parties of his time, the Democrats and the Whigs? The Republican Party was an upstart in a time of discontent, 
the successor to anti-slavery parties like the Liberty Party and the Free Soil Party. Lincoln led the anti-slavery Republican Party to victory against the strongly pro-slavery Democrats and the, quote, lesser evil Whigs. Later, the Equal Rights Party championed women's suffrage. Around the start of the 20th century, the Socialist Party and other progressive parties advanced major reforms we now take for granted, including Social Security, unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, food and drug regulations, the eight-hour workday, ending child labor, and the direct election of U.S. Senators. Today, our country is once again mired in discontent. A handful of recent polls indicate that more than 60% of Americans believe we are on the wrong track. Confidence in Congress is at a record low. Clearly, Americans feel political establishment is not addressing the fundamental issues that we're concerned about. So why do the debates in the media shut out competing visions of our country's future? Why not let the American people see even one debate? with four candidates. Some say the two-party system is too entrenched and you can't play unless you're a Democrat or a Republican. Indeed, our first-past-the-post election system allows both parties to scare voters into line. Vote for the lesser evil or else. Yet we could break free from this trap with a simple reform called ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting allows voters to rank candidates. If no candidate gets more than 50% of the first choice votes, second choice votes are factored in, and so on. The system removes the fear that a vote for a favorite candidate could inadvertently help a least favorite candidate. Ranked choice voting is used in a growing number of American cities and is used on the statewide ballot in Maine. Even Barack Obama, as an Illinois state senator, supported this common-sense reform to take the fear out of voting. But despite all their dire warnings about splitting the vote, the Democrats and Republicans have resisted ranked choice voting and other reforms that would expand voter choice. Power concedes nothing without a demand, and if we want to fix this broken system to empower the people, we need to support candidates who will challenge the status quo. It's time to stop settling for the downward spiral of voting for the lesser evil and stand up to build a better future by voting for the greater good. And this piece is from Bernie Sanders, published on the LATimes.com. Prescription drug prices in the United States are the highest in the world by far. Californians on November 8 have a chance to stand up to the pharmaceutical industry's greed and spark a national movement to end this price gouging. Today, no laws prevent drug companies from doubling or tripling prices, so they just do it. The most recent flagrant example is the emergency allergy injection, EpiPen. Its maker, Mylan, jacked up the price of this 40-year-old medication by 461% between 2007 and 2015. 
During that same period, compensation for Milan's CEO rose 671%. And that's just one company and one drug. Proposition 61, the California Drug Price Relief Act, would bar the state from paying more than the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs does for the same drugs. That would include medicine purchased for state employees and retirees, university students, prison inmates, uninsured people with HIV-AIDS, and Californians covered by the public insurance program, Medi-Cal. The VA pays an estimated 24% less for drugs than most government agencies and about 40% less than Medicare Part D. Those are significant savings. In California, Proposition 61 would make drugs more affordable and accessible for about 6 million people. The soaring cost of medicine is a major health crisis nationwide. One out of five Americans aged 19 to 64 cannot afford their prescriptions. Hundreds of thousands of seniors cut their pills in half to stretch one month's prescription into two. Many of those patients will get sicker, and some will die. Meanwhile, the five largest drug companies made more than $50 billion in profits last year. The top 10 CEOs in the industry received a total of more than $327 million in compensation. How have pharma companies gotten away with such avarice? They currently have 1,266 lobbyists on their payrolls in Washington, D.C., and 118 fighting for their priorities in Sacramento. They've made hundreds of millions in campaign contributions to politicians. And just this year, massive pharma lobbying efforts killed two bills in the heavily Democratic California legislature that would have made modest steps toward drug pricing transparency. Now, drug makers are using their cash and clout to try to defeat Proposition 61. Incredibly, the measure's opponents are prepared to spend up to $100 million in California to make sure that Americans continue paying the highest drug prices in the world. Why? A major pharmaceutical industry publication has called Proposition 61 ground zero in the fight against high drug prices and warned drug company executives that, quote, adoption of VA pricing by the state of California would be a pricing disaster for the entire U.S. drug industry. As a former chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, I would never support a measure that harms our veterans. Pharmaceutical companies cannot unilaterally raise the prices of drugs it sells to the VA. The most the VA pays for a drug is either the best commercial price minus discounts and rebates or the average price paid by pharmacies minus a large discount, whichever is lower. Those price caps are set in law. The VA VA also receives additional discounts if drug prices rise faster than general inflation. In other words, drug companies cannot just jack up the cost of drugs it sells to the VA. In addition, veterans' drug co-payments are fixed and do not rise even if drug prices go up. It is also important to note that veterans being treated for any condition related to their military service pay no out-of-pocket costs whatsoever for prescription drugs. 
The drug industry also argues that less than 20% of Californians will benefit from Proposition 61. In fact, the measure will provide relief to all Californians whose tax dollars pay for the drugs used to treat many Medi-Cal recipients and state employees. Taxpayers would save an estimated $1 billion a year. It's unacceptable that the exact drugs that we buy in our country are sold in Canada, Britain, and other countries for a fraction of the price. My urgent message is to vote yes on Proposition 61 to make medicine more affordable in California and send a signal to Washington that the whole nation's prescription drug policies need an overhaul. And this next piece from Forbes.com by Nancy Fink Hunergarth. Senator Bernie Sanders has demanded that the soda industry stop using his name and likeness in ads that oppose sugary drink taxes. His office sent a cease and desist letter to the soda industry's trade group, the American Beverage Association, which is running the industry's anti-soda tax campaign. A request to Sanders' office for a copy of the letter has not been answered. Quote, advertising from the American Beverage Association that implies that I oppose ballot items in San Francisco and Oakland that would place a tax on drinks with sugar are false, said Sanders in a statement. I have not taken any position on those ballot items, and I've asked the American Beverage Association to stop using my name in connection with this misleading advertising. Earlier this year, Sanders expressed opposition to a three-cent-per-ounce beverage tax proposed by Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney to fund universal preschool and other community initiatives. In an April op-ed in Philadelphia Magazine, Sanders wrote that while, quote, I strongly share the goal of ensuring that every family has access to high-quality, affordable preschool and child care, the tax would disproportionately affect low-income and middle-class Americans. Philadelphia ultimately passed a $0.01 cent per ounce on sugar-sweetened and artificially-sweetened beverages, which is scheduled to be implemented in January 2017. The beverage industry is challenging the tax in court. The American Beverage Association has used Sanders' words and image in a series of ads opposing a penny-per-ounce soda tax on the ballot in both San Francisco and Oakland, California. Nearby Albany, California also has placed a soda tax on the ballot. According to Politico, which first broke the story, Sanders has been featured in industry ads in Boulder, Colorado as well, which is pursuing a similar soda tax on its November ballot. Calling excess sugar consumption a serious health problem, which, quote, can lead to obesity, diabetes, and other serious illnesses, Sanders appeared to soften his sugary drink tax position, saying every community in our country will determine how best to address this major health crisis. Buoyed by Sanders' rebuke to the soda industry, health advocates applauded the senator. 
quote, we're glad to see Bernie speaking out against the health harms of sugar and taking on big soda for its deceptive campaign tactics, said Dave Goldberg, Healthy Food America's vice president. Bernie Sanders speaks for himself and not for the big soda companies like Coke and Pepsi. And from the WashingtonPost.com by John Wagner. Bernie Sanders can still apparently pack a punch when it comes to fundraising. The senator from Vermont raised just shy of $2 million in two days online this week for 13 like-minded U.S. Senate and House candidates, according to his campaign committee. As a Democratic presidential candidate, Sanders was able to raise eye-popping sums over the Internet from small-dollar donors, remaining on a competitive footing with the party's eventual nominee, Hillary Clinton. This week, Sanders tapped his massive donor list, sent out emails asking his fans to support candidates blessed by Our Revolution, an organization he launched after exiting the race. The two-day take was $1.88 million, with more dollars continuing to come in. The biggest beneficiary, an aide said, was Deborah Ross, who has mounted an unexpectedly strong challenge to Senator Richard Burr, Republican North Carolina. About $300,000 flowed to her campaign. One of multiple solicitations sent out by Sanders referred to a recent warning by House Speaker Paul D. Ryan, Republican Wisconsin, that Sanders could take over as chairman of the Senate Budget Committee if Democrats take over control of the Senate. Quote, that sounds like a very good idea to me, Sanders said. It means that we can establish priorities for working people and not just the billionaire class. What would be equally exciting is if the Democrats took back the House and Congressman Ryan was no longer Speaker. And from BrowardPalmBeach.com from the Broward Palm Beach New Times by Jonathan Kendall. There's a lot of frustration among Bernie Sanders supporters regarding their presidential options for the general election. In a recent nationwide survey of 461 former Bernie delegates, fewer than half, 37% to be specific, said they plan to vote for Hillary Clinton come November 8. Although Sanders is currently acting as a surrogate for Clinton, it appears this hasn't been enough to sway many of his ardent supporters. About 17% of the Bernie delegates said they are undecided. Beyond that, a large chunk of these voters, about 33%, plan to support the Green Party's presidential candidate, Dr. Jill Stein. A big reason? Many feel Sanders was treated unfairly by the Democratic National Committee. Quote, some Bernie supporters are going to be voting green this year because Hillary isn't perceived as progressive enough to achieve some important reforms quickly enough, said 25-year-old Fort Lauderdale resident LeBecary Hunter, who canvassed for Sanders this year but now plans to vote for Stein. The explicit bias on behalf of the DNC suggests that Bernie had practically an impossible battle ahead of him.
If the mixed voting plans among Sanders delegates does reflect a feeling about Democratic voters at large, Hunter concluded, then it could mean that many of them will choose to vote for Stein this year. As a result of the schism among Bernie voters, Clinton could fail to mobilize thousands of Florida's Democrats to the booths. Hunter says that since there is a lot of, quote, political crossover among the policies Sanders and Stein promote, the Green Party could win a lot of votes from Democrats and former Democrats. However, Norman Solomon, an elected Sanders delegate from California and coordinator of the Bernie Delegates Network, tells the New Times that the number of Bernie supporters who end up voting for Stein is expected to be low in Florida, since it's a swing state. Quote, given the threat that Trump represents, I believe the protest vote, in quotes, for Stein will end up being much higher in a state like New York or California or Texas, where the electoral vote results are certain, he said. The Stein vote will and should be much smaller in states like Florida and Ohio, where the race is close. That said, Solomon says the overall number of Bernie supporters who plan to vote for Donald Trump and Gary Johnson is, quote, very close to zero. Hunter says that even though he plans to vote for Stein, a Clinton win wouldn't be the end of the world. Quote, I'd be okay with a Clinton victory if it meant a Trump loss, he said. But I don't like that Jill has been so muted right off the bat. There's definitely lopsided representation. And from the tab.com. Politicians are often accused of pandering to voters and caring about issues just enough to get themselves elected to office. They hold rallies and give speeches proclaiming that they will be the one to finally bring about some sort of change. Too often they fall short on those promises. For the politically disenfranchised, the presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders was a breath of fresh air and perhaps an opportunity to break the cycle of electing manipulative leaders. Since Bernie endorsed Hillary Clinton this summer, his supporters have been largely frustrated, disappointed, and left feeling betrayed. Over the last few weeks, however, Bernie has been using the enormous influence and clout he has accumulated to adapt to his new role and continue fighting. The pharmaceutical industry, like any industry that is poorly regulated, has a tendency to take capitalist ideas of the bottom line and profit margins too far. The cost of prescription drugs has always been a sector that Bernie has grappled with and sought to fix. Taking on Big Pharma was a large component of his recent presidential bid, but it has always been something that he focused on as a politician. As a senator in Vermont, Bernie actually brought women with breast cancer to Canada so they could purchase more affordable drugs. For the self-described democratic socialist, the price gouging of medicine for those with very serious illnesses is simply unacceptable and disgraceful. Bernie will not be the next president of the United States, but that does not mean he will be walking away from the battles he has promised to fight. Bernie's now taking on the various pharmaceutical companies with the same passion that he used to galvanize his massive grassroots movement 
and it's working. The first blow to the ineffective paradigm of overpriced prescription drugs in America was his vocal opposition to the Obama administration's decision to appoint Dr. Robert Califf as the head of the FDA back in January because of Califf's close ties to large pharmaceutical companies. In addition to pleading his case in the Senate, Bernie has been using his popular status to begin criticizing these large companies on Twitter, where he has more than 2.5 million followers. Sanders has also been extremely critical about the high prices of EpiPens and has used his newfound appeal to attack Mylan publicly. Sanders has also had a large presence in California more recently to speak about Proposition 61, which is a ballot initiative that aims to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Bernie has now made a tangible impact on a big pharmaceutical industry with his comments on Twitter alone. He highlighted Ariad Pharmaceuticals Incorporated for their grossly overpriced leukemia drug that reportedly costs users up to $200,000 annually. The product in question was Iclusig, which is designated to treat a rare form of leukemia and costs $16,000 for a meager 30-day supply. Following his comments, the value of Ariad's stock fell 15 points, hitting them with a loss of almost $400 million. In the heat of the presidential race, it is easy to be bitter about Bernie easing up on Hillary and campaigning with her. But let's not kid ourselves into thinking she was ever the real target of his transformative energy. He hasn't forgotten what the real issues are, and this proves that his far-reaching influence is still crucial and extremely relevant to American politics. Bernie has always been focused on challenging the industries that profit from the people in predatory ways, and this includes big banks, multinational corporations, and greedy drug companies. He was never pandering to us, and although he lost the battle, he is clearly willing to keep fighting the larger war of inequality and unfairness, which was at the core of his campaign. Perhaps this is the beginning of the new Bernie Sanders who will follow through with his promises despite losing the race. One thing is clear, Bernie will be vocal opposition and he will not quietly fall into obscurity. And from the newsgazette.com by C.G. Estabrook. A Green Party president such as Jill Stein would stop the vicious war making over which the current U.S. president presides. Like all American presidents for more than a generation, President Barack Obama is making war around the world. And now his administration is threatening Russia with war in Syria, and beyond. Since World War II, U.S. presidents have killed more than 20 million people in 37 nations. The U.S. remains during the Obama administration what Martin Luther King called it long ago, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. When the new president inaugurated next January, When the new president is inaugurated next January, Barack Obama will have become the first U.S. president ever 
to have been at war throughout two presidential terms. He has attacked eight countries, two more than George Bush. And he is today conducting what has been called, quote, the most extreme terrorist campaign of modern times, his drone assassinations. He has killed thousands of civilians with drones, including U.S. citizens and hundreds of children. The New York Times says he chooses the targets himself from lists prepared by the CIA. In addition to conducting wars throughout the Mideast, the Obama administration is acting with belligerence towards China and promoting an ongoing proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. That war has already killed more people than Israel killed, with U.S. permission, in Gaza in 2014. The president is risking war with both Russia and China, even nuclear war. He also commands a 70,000-member private army, the Special Operations Command, active in more than 130 countries. Their activities include kidnapping, murder, and torture. Not only is the Obama administration's risking, risking nuclear war, they're preparing for it. President Obama has launched a 10-year trillion-dollar program to update nuclear weapons and make them more usable. The Obama administration is also responsible for the vicious civil war in Syria, which has killed thousands and flooded Europe with refugees. Hillary Clinton, responsible for horrors in Honduras, Libya, Syria, and elsewhere, as president would only continue and intensify the warmongering of the Bush and Obama administrations. The blowback from which is now producing terrorist attacks in Europe and America. The Green Party says instead, quote, establish a foreign policy based on diplomacy, international law, and human rights. End the wars and stop the drone attacks. Cut military spending by at least 50% and close the more than 700 foreign military bases. Stop U.S. support and arms sales to human rights abusers and lead on global nuclear disarmament. That's a call for a reversal of the Obama administration's foreign and military policy. The positions of the Green Party's presidential candidate, Jill Stein, on both foreign and domestic policy, to say nothing of climate catastrophe, are far better than those of the major party candidates. And we shouldn't be dissuaded from voting for Stein by the argument that voting for a third party helps Trump, because even his positions on war and the economy are substantially better than Clinton's. There is, in fact, a candidate talking peace and a reversal of Obama's war policies. And that's Jill Stein of the Green Party. Opponents of more American war should consider voting for the Green Party's nominees. Jill Stein for president, Ajamu Baraka for vice president, and Scott Summers for U.S. Senate, Senate in Illinois.
And from EcoWatch.com by Bill McKibben. The questions come after talks on Twitter in the day's incoming tide of email, sometimes even in old-fashioned letters that arrive in envelopes. The most common one by far is also the simplest. What can I do? I bet I've been asked it 10,000 times by now, and, like a climate scientist predicting the temperature, I'm pretty sure I'm erring on the low side. It's the right question, or almost. It implies an eagerness to act, and action is what we need. But my answer to it has changed over the years, as the science of global warming has shifted. I find, in fact, that I'm now saying almost the opposite of what I said three decades ago. Then, when I was 27 and writing the first book on climate change, I was fairly self-obsessed. And it looked like we had some time. No climate scientist in the late 1980s thought that by 2016 would already be seeing massive Arctic ice melt. So it made sense for everyone to think about the changes they could make in their own lives that over time would add up to significant change. In The End of Nature, I described how my wife and I had tried to prune and snip our desires, how instead of taking long vacation trips by car, we rode our bikes in the road, how we grew more of our own food, how we tried not to think about how much we'd like a baby. Some of these changes we've maintained, we still ride our bikes, and I haven't been on a vacation in a very long time. Some we modified. Thank God we decided to have a child who turned out to be the joy of our life. And some I've abandoned. I've spent much of the last decade in frenetic travel, much of it on airplanes. That's because over time it became clear to me that there's a problem with the question, what can I do? The problem is the word word I. By ourselves, there's not much we can do. Yes, my roof is covered with solar panels, and I drive a plug-in car that draws its powers from those panels. And yes, our hot water is heated by the sun. And yes, we eat low on the food chain and close to home. I'm glad we do all those things, and I think everyone should do them. And I no longer try to fool myself that they will solve climate change. Because the science has changed, and with it, our understanding of the necessary politics and economics of survival. Climate change is coming far faster than people anticipated, even a couple decades ago. 2016 is smashing the temperature record set in 2015, which smashed the records set in 2014. Some of the world's largest physical features, giant coral reefs, vast river deltas, are starting to die off or disappear. Drought does damage daily. Hundred-year floods come every other spring. In the last 18 months, we've seen the highest wind speeds ever recorded in many of the world's ocean basins. In Basra, Iraq, not far from the Garden of Eden, the temperature hit 129 degrees Fahrenheit this summer, the highest reliably recorded temperature ever, and right at the limit of human tolerance. July and August were not just the hottest months ever recorded. They were, according to most climatologists, the hottest months in the entire history of human civilization. The most common phrase I hear from scientists is, quote, faster than anticipated. 
Sometime in the last few years, we left behind the Holocene, the 10,000-year period of benign climactic stability that marked the rise of human civilization. We're in something new now, something new and frightening. Against all that, one's Prius is a gesture, a lovely gesture and one that everyone should emulate, but a gesture Ditto riding the bike or eating vegan or whatever one's particular point of pride. North Americans are very used to thinking of themselves as individuals, but as individuals we are powerless to alter the trajectory of climate change in a meaningful manner. The 5 or 10% of us who will be moved to really act, and that's all who ever act on any subject, can't cut the carbon in the atmosphere by more than 5 or 10% by those actions. No, the right question is, what can we do to make a difference? Because if individual action can't alter the momentum of global warming, movements may still do the trick. Movements are how people organize themselves to gain power, enough power, in this case, to perhaps overcome the financial might of the fossil fuel industry. Movements are what can put a price on carbon, force politicians to keep fossil fuel in the ground, demand subsidies so that solar panels go up on almost every roof, not just yours. Movements are what take 5 or 10% of people and make them decisive, because in a world where apathy rules, 5 or 10% is an enormous number. Ask the Tea Party. Ask the civil rights movement. The other side knows this, which is why it ridicules our movements at all times. When, for instance, 400,000 people marched on New York City, I know that I will get a stream of ugly tweets and emails about how saints preserve us. It takes gasoline to get to New York City. Indeed, it does. If you live in a society that has dismantled its train system, then lots of people will need to drive and take the bus, and it will be the most useful gallons they burn in the course of the year, because that's what pushes systems to change. When brave people go to jail, cynics email me to ask how much gas the paddy wagon requires. When brave people head out in kayaks to block the biggest drilling rigs on earth, I always know I'll be reading dozens of tweets from clever and deadened souls asking, quote, Don't you know the plastic for those kayaks require oil? Yes, we know, and we've decided it's well worth it. We're not trying to be saints. We're trying to be effective. We're not going to be forced into monkish retreat from society. We need to engage this fight with all the tools of the moment. We're trying to change the world we live in. And if we succeed, then those who come after will have plenty of time to figure out other ways to inhabit it. Along the way, those who have shifted their lives can provide inspiration, which is crucial. But they don't by themselves provide a solution. Naomi Klein once described visiting an amazing community farm in Brooklyn's Red Hook that had been flooded by Hurricane Sandy. Quote, they were doing everything right when it comes to climate, she said, growing organic, localizing their food system, sequestering carbon, not using fossil fuel inputs, all the good stuff. Then came the storm. 
They lost their entire fall harvest, and they're pretty sure their soil is now contaminated because the water that flooded them was so polluted. It's important to build local alternatives. We have to do it, but unless we are really going after the source of the problem, namely the fossil fuel industry and its lock on Washington, we are going to get inundated. Like Klein, I find that the people who have made some of those personal changes are usually also deeply involved in movement building. Local farmers, even after a long day pulling weeds, find the energy to make it to the demonstration, often because they know their efforts out in the field aren't enough, even to guarantee a climate that will allow them to continue their efforts. No, the people calling environmentalists hypocrites for living in the real world are people who want no change at all. Their goal is simply to shame us and hence to quiet us, so we won't make them feel bad or disrupt the powers that be. It won't work unless we let it. Movements take care of their own. They provide bail money and they push each other's ideas around the web. They join forces across issues. Black Lives Matter endorsing fossil fuel divestment. Climate justice activists fighting deportations. They recognize that together we might just have enough strength to get it done. So when people ask me, what can I do? I know I now say the same thing every time. Quote, The most important thing an individual can do is not be an individual. Join together. That's why we have movements like 350.org or Green for All, like Black Lives Matter or Occupy. If there's not a fight where you live, find people to support. From Standing Rock to the Pacific Islands, job one is to organize and job two and three. And if you have some time left over after that, then by all means, make sure your light bulbs are all LEDs and your kale comes from close to home. And once again, that piece was written by Bill McKibben, an environmental author and activist and the founder of 350.org, an international climate change campaign. He was also a very strong supporter of Bernie Sanders and one of the individuals that Bernie had nominated to work on the uh, the committee drafting the platform for the Democratic Party. He wrote about that experience as well and about how far they were able to push that platform despite the fact of not getting everything they were looking for and everything they needed to be in there. His presence and the presence of the other people that Bernie Sanders nominated for that committee um, was definitely felt in that final document. So one more time, we're going to revisit the drug price uh, issue. It's one of the big issues still that comes up again and again. And unfortunately, one of the big reasons it comes up again and again is because company after company after company are doing the same thing to support their bottom line on the backs of the sick. 
This piece is by Lydia Ramsey. Senator Bernie Sanders just called out Ariad Pharmaceuticals over the price of its leukemia drug, and the company's stock dropped fast. Ariad, which makes a drug called Eclusig, has raised the price of the drug four times this year. It now costs $199,000 a year before factoring in insurance or any discounts. The company's stock was down 15% Friday afternoon. When it was first approved in 2012, the drug cost $9,580 a month. Now it costs $16,560 a month, a 73% increase. Along the way, the drug has had some safety problems and actually got pulled off the market in 2013 by the FDA, but a few months later was reinstated with warnings about cardiovascular problems that may occur. And there's a chart in this particular story as well that shows the drop of that pharmaceutical stock price after Bernie Sanders called attention to this particular drug and this particular company. And some of the reporting was headlined in a way that said, Bernie Sanders causes this company to lose so much value in its stock. And I wonder, I don't wonder why. I was going to say I wonder why. I did say I wonder why, but I don't wonder. It's, uh, I wonder when the media, instead of reporting that Bernie Sanders shining a light on this company caused its stock to drop. They start reporting that the stupid decisions that the board of this company made put it at such a high risk that just shining a small light on what this company is doing has caused its stock to drop. It's not Bernie Sanders that caused the stock to drop. It's their actions that caused the stock to drop. The only reason it hadn't dropped yet or hadn't stayed low was because people weren't paying attention to what those actions were. So it takes a little attention to the gross actions uh, taken by some of these pharmaceutical companies to make people realize that these uh, companies are not in as good of a shape as otherwise people might think. Oh, and I said one more. Well, here's actually another one more. From businessinsider.com, this piece by Lynette Lopez. Some people never learn. A tweet from Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has yet again brought negative attention to Valiant Pharmaceuticals. The drug maker came under intense congressional scrutiny around this time last year for gouging prices on two life-saving heart drugs. Nitropress and Isupral. Now it has caught the Irish Sanders for jacking up the price of a lead poison treatment it purchased in 2013. When Valiant brought when Valiant bought the drug, a package of vials cost $950, but now it costs about $27,000, according to a report from Stat News. 
Last year's heart drug scandal and accusations of accounting malfeasance from a short seller combined to bring the once high-flying company's stock price down around 90%. It has yet to recover. The follow-up from all of that included the ouster of the company's CEO, a bunch of federal and state investigations, and a congressional hearing in which valiant executives and board members, including billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman, promised to lower prices. According to the company's new CEO, though, they haven't. And now Valiant's business practices are adding unnecessary pain to what can only be considered one of our country's worst man-made tragedies, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. More from Stat. Quote, this is a drug that has long been a standard of care and until recently it was widely accessible at an affordable price, said Dr. Michael Kosnett an associate clinical professor in the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and a consultant to the California Poison Control System. There's no justification for the astronomical price increases by Valiant, which limit availability of the drug to children with life-threatening lead poisoning. A representative from Valiant told Stat that the increased price helps the company improve access to the drug, an excuse we've heard before from other pharmaceutical companies, such as Mylan, the maker of the EpiPen. And lastly today, from HuffingtonPost.com, by Richard Eskow. Sometimes you win. That can be an unfamiliar sensation for people on the left. When you fight for good causes against powerful forces and overwhelming odds, you lose a lot of battles. But sometimes you win. Take last week's announcement from the Justice Department that it's planning to phase out the use of for-profit prisons. Like many such victories, it is only a qualified success. But qualified success is still success. This victory seemed politically impossible as recently as last year. What changed? Like many such victories, it began with consciousness. Attacks on the prison industrial complex were once considered the province of radical activists and crusading, but possibly lonely, left journalists. Some church groups got wind of the issue in the late 1990s and early 2000s and divested themselves of for-profit prison stock. Writers and thinkers and activists continued to shine a light on the problem. Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, has been writing about this issue for years. Books like Prison Profiteers, Who Makes Money from Mass Incarceration, explored the issue in depth. Journalists from The Nation, The Marshall Project, Mother Jones, and elsewhere have continued to provide the public with more information about the problem. Activists in the communities that have suffered most from incarceration, including Black Lives Matter, fought to highlight the problem. 
The idea entered the mainstream world of electoral politics last year when Bernie Sanders made it a centerpiece of his presidential campaign. That move was met with some surprise in insider circles, since prison reform has long been considered a hard-left issue. Progressive organizations picked up the banner. Soon Hillary Clinton felt compelled to return the campaign contribution she had received from lobbyists who represent for-profit prisons. Within months, she was telling Black Lives Matter activists that she too would close down for-profit prisons if she became president. And now comes this decision from the Justice Department. This idea moved from the margins of our political discourse to its heart. In this brief history, we can see something like a life cycle begin to take shape. An idea was brought into consciousness. It was written about and discussed. Then activists promoted it in the streets, in conversations, and in organized campaigns. And it became part of an insurgent political candidacy. Now, despite big money's overwhelming hold on our two-party system, it has become the de facto position of the Democratic Party. Concrete action has been taken. The New York Times editorial board that the that national arbiter of liberal thought has echoed the message that private prisons are corrupt, violent, inefficient, and wasteful. And I think that bears repeating that process because of where it starts and how it grows and finally how it breaks through. An idea was brought into consciousness it was written about and discussed. Then activists promoted it in the streets, in conversations, and in organized campaigns. That is how an issue becomes brought forward, becomes made, awareness becomes, or awareness is brought to it. It is not something that starts in the boardroom. It is not something that starts in the Congress. Issues worth fighting for are not being fought for for by the people in power. They're being fought for by you. It's up to you to start that rolling and to keep it moving. And then, only then, and this is... Bernie repeated this over and over in his campaign. He can't do it. He, he's not going to do it. Not that he doesn't want to do it, but the forces are so big, stacked against him and his ideas, and you and your ideas, and me and my ideas, that they only will happen when movements get together, like the earlier piece from Bill McKibben said when people join a movement and take part and push the agenda forward, that is the only time that the politicians are going to pay attention when there's finally something in it for them, when they can be on the side that will gain them votes and not just the side that will uh, fund that will fund their campaigns. That's when it moves forward. That's when it breaks through. That's when the government takes action. The Justice Department would not have made the decision that it did to phase out for-profit prisons 
if the people didn't demand it. Back to the story from the Huffington Post. There is much more to be done. Only about 8% of federal inmates, less than 23,000 people, are housed in for-profit prisons. So even though this, the government took a stand, it is a stand that in reality um, did not have a major impact on what they do. But despite that, it's still an important victory. The vast majority of people in the for-profit prison system are incarcerated in state or local facilities, and it won't be affected by this decision. For-profit facilities for detaining immigrants where some of the worst abuses have taken place won't be affected by this decision. Profiteering will continue to impact the lives of federal prisoners through corporate ventures that medical care, phone and video calls, and even ankle bracelets. What's more, the affected prisoners represent a tiny fraction of the 2.2 million Americans currently in prison. More, much more, needs to be done. The carceral state runs on greed, on racism, on social control, on fear, and on vengeance. These forces are not easily eliminated. The commodification of human bodies, especially black and brown bodies, will continue. But this is a victory all the same, an instructive one. Lesson number one, we can't depend on political leaders to change the system. Change is an inside-outside game, and it usually happens from the outside in. It took the radical visionaries, the street activists, the writers, the church groups, Bernie Sanders and the progressive organizations to make this happen. Lastly, it took insiders willing to listen and respond. Together, these forces form a kind of ecosystem. Want to change things? Find a place there and inhabit it. Lesson number two. 23,000 prisoners are a tiny fraction of this nation's bloated prison population. Still, an improvement to the lives of 23,000 people is worth celebrating. That improvement is an opportunity to communicate the need for much broader change, not only in the management of our current prison population, but in the more fundamental problem of our nation's destructive addiction to incarceration. Like all addictions, it's a parasite that is destroying the host. When we internally colonize millions of our own people, we undermine our society from within. This can also become a teaching moment regarding our political system's misguided infatuation with privatization. Politicians in both parties have told us for decades that the private sector is better than government at providing many public services. Our experience with for-profit prisons has taught us otherwise, as has our experience with highways and other privatization projects. That makes this an opportunity to renew our understanding of the social compact. It allows us to emphasize the value of communitarian idealism over individualistic greed. The task of promoting these principles is profound, challenging, and daunting. There will be many setbacks. The moral arc of the universe may bend towards justice, but it can look more like a jagged line than a curve. If you take on this work, you will lose 
over and over. That's a fact of life. But here's another. Sometimes you win. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at Bernie 2016. Sorry, at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can check out my website, Bernie-2016.com. And you can support this uh, podcast as well by following the link there to Patreon or going straight to patreon.com slash unrelated things, uh, the, the entity under which I publish Bernie 2016, and you can make a donation. Going out tonight, we will hear David Rovix. I've played a song or two by David Rovix in the past. I think David Rovix is one of the absolute best topical singer-songwriters that's active today. Uh, and you will hear going out tonight David Rovick's song, Jill Stein. Thanks for listening. The farce they call American democracy. On the left is someone who is to the right of Tony Blair. On the right is a neo-fascist, narcissistic billionaire within the corporate press It's all about these two The candidates who got all the dollar signs in view Meanwhile off the spectrum is someone they don't mention They don't think the republic can handle the dissension The only progressive one you'll see listed in most states The only one whose dinners cost a couple bucks a plate The only one whose platform makes any sense to me The only one I like to picture running the country I'm voting for Jonestown I'm going green They say I'm throwing my vote away I don't know what they mean I'm voting for Jonestown I'm going green On the one hand, a guy who believes in getting rich at any price On the other, a warmonger who makes Thatcher look nice Or you can vote the party that will bring full employment As it cuts the military budget by over 50% With the Green Jobs Program all across the country So we can pull back from the brink with renewable energy Cause the future is clear We won't have one If we don't have a government That can get the job done I'm voting for Jill Stein I'm going green They say I'm throwing my vote away I don't know what they mean I'm voting for Jill Stein I'm going green You could roll over, play dead Vote for the 1% And wonder if where your world went Or you can go with your conscience Give it a try Before Trump and Clinton kill us We gotta kiss it all goodbye I'm voting for Jill Stein I'm going green They say I'm throwing